tonight we launch into a new series. The title of which is The Piece of Paper That Makes All the Difference. How Living Together Before Marriage Diminishes Life After the Vows. How Living Together Before Marriage Diminishes Life After the Vows. The topic tonight, there will be, I think, four. I've never spoken on this subject before, and I'm working through it all, and it takes a lot of time. I think there'll be four messages in this series. The morning series is brand new to me, too, the way we're covering the subject of giving, my Christian ed class. So there's a lot of stuff that we're, we're kind of working through. The topic tonight, why people cohabit before marriage... And are these reasons viable? You may be surprised, you may not. Uh, I talk to a lot of people in this church. A lot. I don't mean hundreds. I mean proportionate to the size of the church. Christian people go to church every Sunday, carry their Bibles to church, raise their hands in worship, tell Jesus how much they love and adore him, and they're living with someone outside of marriage. It's very common in the body of Christ. And they have their justifications for it. I hear it over and over and over again. It's not always young people. It could be people in their 20s. I've spoken to people in their late 40s. Although that's looking young to me now. <laughs> Braden, my grandson, was telling his mom about his new teacher... Liked, liked her teacher. She was very nice. Oh, is she young? Oh, no, 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 no. She's really, really old, Mom. She's probably close to 50. <laughs> so you just look for a home somewhere, you know, where we can dump these people off. And... But I hear that from older people, is what I'm saying. I've come to realize there's a certain mistaken logic to the reasons I frequently hear from professing Christian people as to why they are sure it's simply prudent, wise, to have a trial period of living together before committing to a permanent marriage. They're simply extrapolating the same reasoning that we all use in other large life decisions. Uh, this year I bought a new car, a brand new car, though it's last year's model, it's a 2016, never been driven, it's the nicest car I've owned, it's a lovely Hyundai Elantra, and at $27,000 it is the most I've ever paid for a vehicle in my entire life. When I was settling on choosing between two or three cars for purchase, I went in and I took this particular car out for a test drive. Rini and I did. I wanted to see exactly what it would be like to drive the car. I mean, there are certain experiences that you can't pick up just from reading a brochure about a car. You want what's commonly known as a test drive. How would you react if you went in to 
test drive your potential car purchase, and the salesperson said, well, okay, I'll let you take the car out for a drive, but not until you've given me the full payment for the car. You can't test drive the car until you are irreversibly committed to owning it. You'd say, well, just a second. The whole reason for the test drive is to see if I want to make the commitment. Don't ask me to make the commitment first and then take the car out for a test drive. What good's a test drive after I've already bought the car? That's what you'd probably say. You'd say something like you want to test drive the car to see if you want to own it and that you wouldn't be in a position to buy the car until you tried it out first. And nobody thinks there's anything unreasonable about that. Makes sense. You shouldn't be expected to make the commitment to purchase the car until after you've at least driven the car. Nobody balks at that. That just seems to be good thinking. Unfortunately, a vow-binding marriage isn't like a car, and it isn't like a shirt on a store hanger. Just by nature of what marriage is, a covenant, vows, you can't take marriage off the hanger and try it on before purchasing. It's the biggest commitment in anyone's life, and by definition, it can only be experienced after the irreversible commitment has been made. And that doesn't sound safe to a lot of people. It doesn't sound safe to a lot of people. It sounds like a kind of trap where you, you can't see what a choice is really like until you can no longer get out of it. It's a scary business, marriage. That, in a nutshell, is what has made cohabitation without marriage the fastest-growing type of relationship in the country. It, it seems to offer the test drive that marriage vows don't allow. So right now, in Canada, the rate of cohabiting relationships is increasing four times faster than married couples. In the United States, 60% of the population, 60% of the population will cohabit before entering marriage, and a very high percentage of that 60% will eventually marry someone other than the person they lived with. Now, not surprisingly anymore, because the church just so typically seems to follow culture's lead. This same arrangement is widely accepted even among people who think they are disciples of Jesus Christ. I've read in supposedly, allegedly, Christian books by professing Christian authors that cohabitation is actually a good way to save Christian marriage from soaring divorce rates. 
And if marriages are eventually saved from divorce, then God must be pleased with the fruit of effective cohabitation. See how the logic goes? It all works. This is a good thing for Christian people. So this is our study for a few weeks. Does this kind of reasoning stand up? Does it make sense? First of all, and you'll be surprised to hear me say this, we won't get to this part tonight. First of all, does it stand up to God's revealed will in Scripture? Because that's the most important consideration. Or at least it ought to be. Let me tell you about a little comma there. A recent conversation I had. A person who professes to be a Christian, who is doing something that they know full well by their own admission. They know this is sinful, what they're doing. It isn't this. I'm just using this as an illustration. They know they are committed to a sinful course of action that clearly contradicts God's revealed will in Scripture, and they are not going to deviate from it. They are staying with it. And here's what surprised them. It might surprise you. And I looked at that person and I said, if you are professing to follow Jesus and you commit to disobeying him as Lord and you don't repent, you are going to go to hell. Does that shock you? It shouldn't. It's very similar to what Jesus said. But there are a lot of Christian people committed to this. Does it stand up to God's revealed will in Scripture, first of all? But in addition to that, and here's where we're coming down tonight just to start. Does cohabitation deliver what people seem to think it delivers? That's where I want to start tonight. Are we being given the straight goods in these glowing praises of cohabitation before marriage? And I am convinced... I am convinced we are not being told the truth here. I'm convinced over and over again that when God's ways are turned upside down, it's not just some religious rule book that gets broken. I'm convinced that what gets broken is the lives of people who disobey God's gracious revealed will. That whatever God commands is always backed by love. Not just God flexing his muscles, but God knowing what is best for his creatures. Conviction of mine is our physical lives. Our physical, ordinary lives. I'm not talking about your prayer life. I'm not talking about your devotions. I'm not talking about your Bible study. I'm talking about the person you. Our physical lives cannot thrive living contrary to God's revealed will. Not long term. It won't work. So by nature, this opening teaching tonight, and I'm going to try and stay fairly close to my notes. I've got a lot of statistics and quotes. This opening message will be a little different from at least my typical pattern on a Sunday teaching. Most of the data I want to pull forward tonight isn't from the Bible and it isn't from Christian sources. Almost none of the statistics tonight come from inside the community of faith. And I did that on purpose. 
What I hope we all see by the time we leave church tonight is the reliability of God's revelation isn't dependent on religious doctrine to be verifiable. That God's way is right is an open truth. It will stand up to any honest examination. Divine truth isn't just effective for people of faith as we are known. That's the reason for the different texture of this opening study tonight. So stay with me. It's also worth noting that this is a relatively easy topic to study statistically. It, it has the two ingredients necessary for solid, verifiable research. There's an abundance of subjects to study... You can't get reliable information just studying one or two people. There are millions of subjects to study. And this information has been collected for over a very long period of time. Multiplied millions of cohabiting couples exist for study, and the data has been collected since the early 60s, since before many people in this room were born. They've been keeping track. Since 1960, the number of cohabiting couples has increased 15-fold. All that to say... The information that we have statistically is highly accurate and highly reliable and has nothing whatsoever to do with facts being manipulated by some kind of evangelical Christian prejudice or bias. The important point tonight is this. By any measuring stick, here's my conclusion before the teaching. By any measuring stick, you can pick it. Cohabitation doesn't work. There are no positive features in the statistical data. This is not a religious conviction. It's not even a biblical conviction at this point in our study. It's an unbiased, universally observed fact supported by virtually every survey... And all data. I want to look at this from three different angles. You with me? Point number one. Cohabiting relationships disintegrate four times more often than even the highest of divorce rates. Pick places in the country where divorce rates are higher. And they aren't even across the country. But pick Pick places where the divorce rate is the highest, all right? And in those places, the lowest statistical numbers for cohabiting breakups are still four times greater. We're not talking about couples that merely sleep together. We're talking about couples who have moved in together, who have made the commitment of somehow sharing a home together without marriage vows. Those relationships on the conservative side of the statistics, some have it far higher. I'm giving you the lowest numbers. Break up four to one more than even the highest divorce rates 
on record. Now, what makes that such a sad fact is another statistic that might surprise you. The Pew Research Center in the U.S. finds that millennials have a stronger desire for marriage than any previous generation in history. A stronger desire for marriage. I was shocked by that. Than any previous generation in history. They have come out of homes. They are the generation that has been the first, the first bump out of homes where divorce rates started to climb astronomically. They've come out of homes that in record numbers have been shattered by divorce and generations tend to be shaped by what they feel they have missed out on. So millennials crave secure marriages. But that makes them vulnerable because what it means is they also fear bad marriages. For many of them, in the millions, they don't want what their parents had. And they feel they must get it right when they marry. They, they feel the pressure. The pressure's on. They simply can't afford to make the same mistakes as their parents and cohabiting... Cohabiting seems to offer the best chance of learning the ropes of marriage while still allowing the chance for an easy exit if things go sour. Remember, the plain data reveals the vast majority of couples cohabiting desire marriage and they see their present cohabitation as a stepping stone marriage. Not all, but the vast majority view it that way. The Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan notes that a full 75% of cohabiting couples are aiming at eventual marriage. 75%. 62% feel living together before marriage is the best way to avoid that eventual marriage ending in divorce. So, most of them see This is the way to avoid a divorce in the future. And a full three-quarters of them are hoping that this is going to prepare them for a better marriage in the future. That's what they're aiming at. But they're wrong. They're wrong. Even if what they want is good, the way they are seeking it is absolutely disastrous. Remember, think about this for a minute. Marriage requires something that marriage does not. Marriage requires something that cohabitation does not, sorry. Marriage demands something that at least one of the cohabiting partners wants to avoid. That's why cohabitation exists, right? Marriage requires something that cohabitation doesn't. If that weren't the case, then there wouldn't be cohabiting couples. They'd just all get married. They all recognize marriage requires something that cohabitation does not, and that's why why they cohabit. That's why it exists as a relationship. And, And the easy out 
of cohabitation is the poorest training ground for the life-till-death commitment of marriage. The, the reality is this. This isn't a Christian truth. This is just a universal truth. You can't learn commitment in an uncommitted relationship. You can't learn commitment in an uncommitted relationship. In fact, the statistics prove the, the drift-in, opt-out pattern of cohabitation consistently paves the way for the same carryover of a drift-in, opt-out continuation in the following marriage. The cohabitation trains people in non-commitment, and they bring that non-commitment into the marriage relationship because it's all they've known. Cohabitation, in other words, trains couples to leave marriages when they become challenging. Please think about that. It's what Professor Scott Stanley of the University of Denver calls the sliding versus deciding syndrome. Those are his words. His research, his non-Christian research reports that cohabitors who do eventually marry most often just slide into marriage because, listen, quote, because of the relational inertia created by cohabiting. Think about that phrase for a minute. Relational inertia. Simply put, he means cohabitation makes it more difficult to leave a bad relationship than just getting out of a bad dating relationship. The cohabiting couple has already tied up some of the knots, though not all of them. It's tied up some of the loose ends of a plain dating relationship by the very act of moving in together, sharing financial commitments, rent obligations, relational roles, etc. That's so important. Because you would think what couples are going to do is they're going to get into a cohabiting relationship. They're going to see that something isn't working right. And then, this is what they tell themselves when they enter that relationship, we won't get married if it's not working out. But they do. They do. They do because of, Professor Scott Stanley's phrase, relational inertia. We're together. We're we're here. We're under the roof. We already split the rent 50-50 in the phone bill. We've got a visa card. And they go into it. Couples in a terrible relationship, cohabiting, are less likely to end that relationship cohabiting than if they were just dating they will keep going with a disastrous relationship into a disastrous marriage. Cohabitation sets couples up for a bad marriage relationship the way traditional dating does not. So, this first point is basic to everything else. Does the experience of cohabitation teach couples things that will make them better spouses after marriage? We have, statistically, an absolute answer to that question. No. Not by any measurement, not ever. It doesn't work. It's not even close to true, and the evidence is universal in that direction. Sociologists at the University of Chicago and Michigan State emphatically that, quote, 
the expectation of a positive relationship between cohabitation and then marital stability has been shattered by studies in several Western universities, including Canada, Sweden, New Zealand, and the United States. This is the universal conclusion on this issue. In their study, the relationship between cohabitation and divorce, sociologists William Axon and Arlen Thornton conclude that people with cohabitation experience prior to marriage are 50 to 80% more likely to divorce than couples who have never cohabited. Did you hear that? Fifty to eighty percent more likely to divorce than couples who have never cohabited. Here's what that means. You won't hear this at very many uh, church marriage seminars. Here's what it means. If you're here tonight and you want to increase your chances of staying married by 50 to 80%, all you have to do is not do something. Don't move in with somebody before marriage. Isn't that amazing? If you want to increase the odds of your marriage lasting by 50 to 80%, all you have to do is don't do something. Don't move in with someone before you marry. Not saying that's the best biblical advice, but it's still what the statistics show. I have one other thought under this first point, and it's, it's sadly missed in this day of political correctness. Cohabitation is also the most sexist of all relationships. Now, I'm going to deal with that at length next Sunday night. That's going to be the topic. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just hopping on it now for a minute. I simply mean this. That the man and the woman, I'm talking heterosexual couples. The man and the woman, the vast majority of the time, don't enter the cohabiting relationship on the same footing. You need to note, this isn't something from, you know, a religious radio show, a talk show. This is... Statistically, out of sociology departments and studies at universities across Canada and the U.S., studies show that approximately 75% of women enter a cohabiting relationship considering it a doorway to eventual marriage. 75% of women move in with someone thinking of it as a doorway to eventual marriage. 75%. Do you know how many men do? 20%. I want to ask you, Who do you think has the relational clout in that kind of relationship? Who do you think feels freer? Who do you think is most likely to get the broken heart? You would think. You would think, oh, the woman would just say, fine. It's best that I find out now that my man isn't interested in marriage. I can get out easily and find one who is interested in marriage. Don't forget, though, the last point on relational inertia created by cohabiting. The plain fact is they don't get out. They imagine they will change their cohabiting partner over time. Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll come to love me more. And they stay with the same man all the while destroying their chance for happy marriage and family. Please remember 
It's a blunt truth. Biological clocks can tick faster than wedding bells ring. Point number two. And we're like 75% done. First point was the longest one. Two, cohabiting relationships consistently manifest a much higher rate of physical violence and abuse. It is statistically proven that men with rings on their fingers are safer men to live with. It's a fact. It's not a church fact. It's an actual statistical truth. I know... I know there is nothing but shame to be felt for violence exhibited in typical marriage relationships. It's all sinful and deserving of the sternest punishment. The Bible's call is for men to lay down their lives to honor their wives. But think about this. Journal of Family Violence reported on the most common relationship between batterers and victims. Quote, the most frequently cited relationship was cohabitation at nearly 50% of the couples living together. This is triple that of married partners. That's still a disgusting truth about marriage. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is this is three times worse. Three times. Michael D. Newcomb P.M. Bentler came to this conclusion after extensive research published in, listen to this title, Assessment of Personality and Demographic Aspects of Cohabitation and Marital Success. That's not the article, that's just the title of it. Quote, Cohabitors experience significantly more difficulty in their relationships. This is not from some religious broadcast, okay? Again, I want to point that out. This is not Christian at all. Cohabitors experience significantly more difficulty in their relationships with adultery, alcohol, drugs, and independence than couples who had not cohabited. Apparently, this makes marriage preceded by cohabitation more prone to problems often associated with other deviant lifestyles. For example, the use of drugs and alcohol, more permissive sexual relationships, and an abhorrence of dependence than marriage not preceded by cohabitation. I can't. i got to stop. That's enough on that one. Point number three. Love will keep us together. Question mark. How cohabitation paves the way for sexual activity outside the cohabiting relationship. According to studies at the University of California, quote, the odds of a recent infidelity were more than twice as high for cohabitors than for married persons. And here's the important part. This held true even when researchers controlled for issues such as increasing permissive values about extramarital sexuality. So they're saying, given that in both marriage and cohabiting relationships, people are just generally more sexually uh, active. Granted that society is moving in that direction. They said figuring that in it is still twice as high for cohabitors than for married people. And then they conclude this. The commitment mechanisms of marriage 
were likely the reasons for the difference. The commitment mechanism. That's the vows. The vows make the difference. Again, this is not some Christian radio program's conclusion. These are totally secular observations. It's the same conclusion found in the American National Sex Survey, which found live-in boyfriends are more than four times more likely than husbands to cheat in the last 12 months, and live-in girlfriends more than eight times more likely to cheat than wives in traditional marriages. You're buying into unfaithfulness when you cohabit, and you'll drag it into your marriage after the vows. The survey concluded there is a relational clarity, quote, to marriage that affects not only both people in the marriage relationships, but also potential outside sexual partners. A man or a woman with a wedding ring is still more off limits than someone without a ring. Think about that. I mean, there are actual names for people who disregard the vows and the boundaries of marriage. Even, even the most morally careless of people still have a slight repulsion against the escapades of those who are still thought of as adulterers or adulteresses. But when was the last time you heard anyone say with shock, you mean you actually slept with a cohabiting person? Last point. The verdict is in. Everyone benefits when marriage is held in honor. Do you have Hebrews 13, 4 in your notes? Read it out loud with me, would you? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There will be other teachings, as I said, just scratching the surface here tonight. But here's my closing point. God's revealed will for marriage and the beauty of marriage isn't just the flexing of divine muscle. This isn't just God saying, do it my way or else. I get it. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God will. But God's will is always a revelation of grace. It's an expression of what works best and what fulfills most, what brings the most joy. Even for society at large, there is still just a common grace that preserves family life and decency in our land. But for followers of Christ, there's more than just that. There's something beautiful in that word, undefiled. It, it paints a picture of some kind of purity and freshness. It speaks of something unpolluted. It's like asking the question, why would anyone prefer contaminated drinking water when they could have something pure and safe and clean? Why would you drink something defiled when you could have something pure and wholesome? See, sin never just brings guilt. It does do that. But sin always diminishes life 
and it always dilutes joy. Preserve anything undefiled. So, if you're with a partner and he or she is trying to pretend to be following Christ while asking you to move in, don't fall for that. I don't care if they go to this church. I don't care if, I don't care, I don't think this is true. I don't care if it's a pastor on staff or a board member or someone you respect. Don't do it. Don't ever do it. If you're a young woman, you will never train your man into a husband that way. Not in a million years. And if you're a young man, that girl of yours deserves to be loved by a groom like Jesus who would lay down his life for his church. Don't settle. Don't settle. There is not one shred of evidence hiding under any rock anywhere that cohabitation is good for marriage. It really shouldn't surprise us, should it? The way our creator ordained things from the very beginning, isn't it amazing? You give science enough time. Just give them enough time. And they will come around and start seeing what God said all along. He's a good God. Let's pray.